as we get started here in the auditorium, I'm going to invite you to go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. While you're turning, let's just do a little bit of, of waking up on a nice fall, cool morning. During your morning routine, like this morning, name something you'd hate to discover it wasn't working. The coffee pot is going to be number one. I th- no, no, it's up there, though. The water heater, okay, is going to be number one, I believe. Okay, the shower, the furnace. <laughs> Some of you haven't even turned it on yet, right? Okay. Uh, what else? Anything else? What they said is this, the alarm clock. Like somebody just said, the hair dryer. Do people still use hair dryers? Uh, I've not used one for years. The car, the coffee maker, the shower or hot water. Tell me, how many times a year do most men get their hair cut? No snide remarks, folk. Okay, just... 12 times, once a month. Eight? Six, four? Okay. 12 times? Okay. Here we go. Some of these answers amazed me. 52 times. Wow. That's every week. Okay. That would just wipe out my head. Uh, 20 times, 50 times, 10 times, 24 times, and most about once a month. Name a place where people watch the clock. Don't say church, okay? Don't say church. You guys don't anyway, right? What's that? Doctor's office, school, somebody said work. I think you've got most of them. What's that? Airport. Airport. That's the one I'm missing. There it is, airport. Doctor's office, church, school, and work. Here we go with another one. Name a place where it's okay to yell. Ball games. What'd you say? At your kids. <laughs> what else? Places it's okay to yell. I was going to put vacation Bible school. Okay. You got anything else? At your kids, ballparks. Amusement park is going to be there, yeah. A concert, I think, is going to be there. What's that? Oh, that, that's so nice to hear it. It's not up there, though. Backyard, amusement park, sporting event, concert. Number one was the playground. Kids aren't mentioned. They must have, they must have been dealing with people without kids. Right? Okay, from whom do most people learn about God and the Bible? Now, what we're doing, what this is, is this from a survey of those who claim to be born again. Where did most of them learn or hear the gospel from? Sunday school is going to be one of the places. Parents is going to be there. Okay. Oh, camp is camp's a good one, but it's not up there. Okay. Other Christians, Christian schools, radio, grandparents. Okay. Church is going to be there. And I think one of you mentioned it. They had friends, neighborhood Bible studies, Sunday school, grandparents, parents, and preachers. Now, taking those, and that's where they said they heard most, you know, when they got exposed, they were saying, where did I really get exposed to the gospel? Um, uh, Actually, parents should be above preachers. I have those two uh, in the survey. I have them misplaced. Um, Here's what was interesting in part of the survey. 55%. Now, this number is down. It used to be around 2,000. It was like 75%. So it's dropped. 55% of those claiming to be saved made a profession before age 11. So the majority are still getting saved when they're kids. Um, Of that, over half said it was their parents that led them to Christ. 
Other ones were like things that were mentioned were camps, schools, um, Sunday school teachers, things of that sort. 20% of those saved in their teen years and early 20s, they said it was through a friend that they heard the gospel and they'd listened. I should probably put it that way, that they really listened. Less than 5% of Christians say they respond in getting saved at the promptings of a preacher or during an invitation. Okay, the majority of people, that's not where they, they get bored again. And the point of this whole survey, as they concluded, was personal relationships are very important. The, um, I didn't put it up here, but the majority of people who visit churches, the influence that gets them to the church for the first time is, it's a friend. It's a friend. The vast majority. So we, you and I, this, what we're trying to talk about here is very apropos in our culture of this day. That we're saying, let's try to develop some opportunities to be able to share the gospel. And one of those opportunities is sitting down, doing a Bible study, helping somebody who in this culture, there's people who don't have any idea about the Bible whatsoever. And so we're trying to explain. And what we're doing is we're going through this booklet called Foundations that has basic Bible doctrine that most of you could fill out the answers by yourself with just a matter of a couple hours, but we're still going through it because it is good. It is good to rehearse truth. Um, Paul talks about it. Jesus did it in his teaching. Uh, John talks about it in his writings where they say, we told you before and we tell you again. Jesus repeated lessons time and time again, and part of it is it's good to rehearse. Part of it is we forget. And part of it is as we go along, all of a sudden we're focusing on one thing and we need to focus on another. So what we're doing is we're taking the time and we are in the topic of stewardship. Now this is, uh, this is going to be multiple guess. When we say steward or stewardship, does it mean to serve others such as the person on a ship? That guy who does the waiting. Okay? To act in a science fiction film. Is that what it means? Named after the guy who played Captain Picard. Okay? Patrick Stewart, okay, um, to make a really bad deal, named after the guy who had Stewart's Folly, okay. Um, yeah, it's really not Stewart's Folly. The person who are the idea of being responsible for managing what's put in your care. Which one is it? Oh, it was so easy, so obvious, okay. Um, the, all, you know, I'm playing with different ideas here, but it's D, managing something, true or false, Okay, a modern-day steward is somebody who has power of attorney. That could be that same concept of steward. True or false? That's true. That's true. Okay, in Bible times, stewards normally were not the actual owner of the property they managed. That's true as well. Okay, here's one. Believers are stewards of whatever possessions or abilities God has given them. That's true. Thank you. Uh, this one. Parents are stewards of the kids that God has given them to raise. Therefore, the kids actually belong to God. That's true. So when you yell at them, okay, you're yelling at God's kids. And um, Here we go. Pastors were called stewards. Oh, it even showed up. The answer is true there. Uh, from The original wording is the idea of a steward. Um, let's do another one. Every believer's life and body actually belongs to God since he bought them by the blood of Christ. That's true. Do you remember a passage? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Okay, uh, that you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Every good thing we have actually comes to us from God. Any, any Bible? James 
James 1.17, every good gift comes from above. Uh, these good items include such things. Now, I've already mentioned a couple of them, okay? Our bodies, our life, our kids. What other good things has God given us that actually he's just giving them on loan to us? Okay. Well, eternal life is there, but I'm talking about uh, things here that we have right now. We have eternal life. That's true. What's that? Talents, homes, family. Okay. Okay. Health is a stewardship. You got to take care of our bodies that way. Pardon me? Creation as a whole. Okay. Are we supposed to be good stewards of the world, the environment? Yeah, we are. We really are. Okay. Can you think of anything else you, that you came that got you here this morning? Your car. Okay. Think of anything that's on your body right now. Okay. Clothes. Okay. The one thing that the Bible talks about. Okay. Since all these things are unload, we ought to take care of them as God would please God. You'd say true to that. The one area that we're talking about is your money. It's not yours or mine, though it is entrusted to us. Our money actually belongs to the Lord. And it's unknown to us to be able to handle it in a way that honors the Lord. Now, we're in the middle of that discussion. That means, as some of you said last week, we don't use that money to do sinful things. We don't use that money or get that money or invest it in a way that would be unethical or, or trying to keep some of it by lying or cheating or things of that sort. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the bulk of this chapter is writing to churches and talking about their finances and how the members handle their finances. And in the context, it's talking about grace giving. And that word grace giving, that concept shows up several times, the word for graciousness or grace giving. This is because, one, we made this comment last week, only by God's grace do we have anything to even give to the Lord. Amen. True? Okay, we said it comes from him. Grace giving is by God's grace that he gives us the ability and the desire to give to him. Remember, by sinful nature, what are we when it comes to things? We're selfish, okay? But God works in us both to will and to do. So his grace empowers us to be able to do this. And grace giving, by being gracious to somebody, you're acting out the idea of grace, helping to meet needs. So we made that observation, and we said that in this passage, there are many lessons on um, the, the lessons that I could go through this text and could show you lessons on how the church is supposed to be steward of the money that people give and how they're supposed to have it, the people who handle it, things of that sort. It's there. It's illustrated in the text. But what we were talking about is five major principles that talk about stewardship. And those principles, here's where we were last week, that when we give, the author of our booklet in uh, this foundation says that our giving is to be spiritual giving. What does that mean? Does that mean when all of a sudden the plate passes or I go by the box this morning that I give a spiritual gift, not a physical one, and in the spirit I'm contributing to the work? Okay. What's it mean by spiritual giving? Okay, okay. Our purpose is a spiritual purpose, yes? No? What's the spiritual pur- purpose of giving? 
Yeah, several of you, your thoughts are all the same. Okay, by giving, we're giving to advance spiritual ministries. We're giving to glorify God, all these things. Spiritual giving is that which comes from the heart, a heart that is right with God, okay? Because is giving okay and you just give so as to buy God's forgiveness? Is that spiritual giving? No, but do churches do that? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so we're giving in a way that we have the spiritual goals in mind. Our giving, in, when we give it in a spiritual sense, that our hearts, it's not just our money, but we're giving our hearts, that's acceptable to the Lord. Our giving is not to be done to the idea of showing off for the applause. That's not spiritual giving if you're giving and saying, hey, everybody, look at what I'm doing. That's not spiritual giving, okay? I'm too impressed. Giving is an actual part of worship. And so when we worship this morning, we, we, it, it frustrates me when people say, you know, when we get together, we're going to have the worship service, and then we're going to have the Bible study. What do most people say about what? What are they distinguishing here? That when they say the worship service is the music. Okay, hey, wait a minute. Isn't worship more than just singing? Worship involves hearing and responding to the Spirit of God, not just the music we do. Worship involves giving to the Lord. That's part of our act of worship. And so all of this in mind, they, the, the author of the material, they talked about a second aspect out of that Second Corinthians was consistent, well-planned giving. We talked about these verses. I'm not going to belabor them anymore. That purposes in his heart is to plan ahead of time. The first day of the week tells you very clearly that idea it's supposed to be consistent, that we're supposed to be giving, and giving in the sense of when we gather, there's a treasure box of some sort, an offering box that was there. And we went and we referenced Proverbs chapter 3, that idea of give up your first fruits. In other words, plan it. Not just give God what is the leftovers, but you plan ahead. And so that whole idea of consistent planning. We, um, we said that as stewards, it's a part of worship. You have to do it with the spiritual heart. It's something God wants all of us to do. It's to be our first fruits, to do it regularly, time and again, plan for, God will bless it. But it's very individualistic. What I mean by that is this, the amounts don't have to be the same of what we give this morning. And that's okay with God. We all don't have to give as much as, and we can put a name out there. Okay, we all, and, and in fact, we might even give different amounts and keep different amounts. And that's okay. That's okay. It's very private, very personal choice how much we give. But the question is, how much should we give? We just said it's so, totally up to us. But is there some type of indication in Scripture where we can start? Is there some kind of a, uh, an idea? Do I give $1? Do I give $100? What should I give? Do I give $10? Okay, is there anything in Scripture? And so in frequent churches, in Bible churches, they talk about tithing. And the initial, a tithe is actually what amount? It's a tenth. It's a tenth. In the Old Testament, how much was a tithe for the Jews under the law? Anybody know? Um, there was a basic tithe that was 10%, but then they had to give a second tithe, and then they had to give a third tithe. And so basically on an annual basis, and again, understand their tithing system supported 
a whole lot more than just the, the temple ministry as time went by. But they typically gave right around 23% is what they were required to give. And that was used for all the social programs of taking care of the poor. It was used for lots of different things. And so when we talk about the tithe, in most everybody's mind, the basic tithe is going to reference a 10%. Now, the reaction when I say under the law is most people will say, we are no longer under the law, so we don't have to give a tenth. Okay, that's based upon this concept, that only under the law was there ever a tithe. Is that true? Will you say no? Abraham. Abraham, okay. It was, okay, it, some will say it's no longer valid, but that's true. We're not under the law. We're not under all those things. But the tithe was even practiced before the law. Okay, to say it was only limited to the law, that's a misnomer. That's a mistake biblically. In Genesis 14, Abraham has won the victory after um, it's when his uh, nephew Lot has been taken and the five kings uh, of the cities uh, who have invaded, Abraham has come and beaten them and freed the people that were with Lot. And they are met by the king of, Jer- uh, of Salem or Jerusalem, okay, in that area. And the king is by the name of Melchizedek, okay, a picture, <clears throat> um, uh, an image of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And when Abraham comes with all of the f- people that were freed, he comes with all the spoils that he has captured from those who were the invaders. He comes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek says, Blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hands. Abraham's response to this priest of God was to give him tithes out of all that was captured out of all that bounty. And so the verse, what does it tell us? Several things, real quickly. Okay, In your notes, there's a comment about what do you learn about it. And so Abraham gives a tenth of the spoils. Several thoughts come out. He believed that God is the one who gave him the victory. He and Melchizedek believed this. They believed that God is the one who ultimately gave them the possessions since he gave them the victory. Okay, they believe this, that since God is the one who is the ultimate source of what we now possess, the response was, we'll give him a tithe. We'll give God a tithe to his prophet, to his representative, Melchizedek. That means to you and me, the tithe was in practice prior to the law. And not only was it in practice prior to the law, in other words, it spans multiple different dispensations. It's not just under the law. It was understood. In ancient times, a tithe was understood by those ancient countries that that was an appropriate gift to give. Um, even before the law of Moses. And so I want you to go to Luke 11, and there's a conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees. In Luke 11, Jesus is, this is one of those few times that man of days, Jesus just speaks really, really uh, forthright. And in Luke chapter 11, (coughs) let's just get the gist of what he's doing. The Pharisees are giving him a hard time And Jesus says to them, verse 39, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools! Did not he that made that which is without also make that which was within? But rather give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe to you Pharisees! 
He says it again, verse 43. Woe unto you, Pharisees. He says again, verse 44. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And what other name does he call them? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Okay. Now, in this context, he is just. He is lamb-blasting them. He is letting them have it, condemning them for their hypocrisy. And their hypocrisy is they're all worried about the outside, but they're not worried about the inside. Okay, And as they, he talks to him, he says to him, whoa, and by the way, in, in ancient time, that's a really, really severe judgment. Man, it's just you know, a really, really harsh uh, uh, condemnation. But in verse 42, he, he, he has a, a, a way of saying things. He says, woe unto you Pharisees. You tied the very things out of your garden, okay? The mint, the rue, all manner of herbs, and you pass over the more important things, the love of God. The judgment of God, you know, condemning sin and calling it sin and loving the people that God loves. And he says to them, these ought you have done, but not leave the other undone. What are the things that he's, come, he's saying, you guys, what you did was good, but you shouldn't have forgotten these. What is the thing that he just said they did that he calls it good? Tithing. The tithing of the things out of the garden. He says very, very simply, the tithing ought you have done, but you shouldn't have done that because, do, do people ever do this? Do people ever give things to God, but then they want to live the way they want to live? Does that ever happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's what he's talking about. Okay. This is the only time Jesus commended the Pharisees for something they did. So I put it together and just say, okay, here's some food for thought for me. Okay, although true, tithing is not, the word's not mentioned in the book of Acts, it's not mentioned in the epistles. Okay, here's what I do know. It was before the law, so to say it was only for those under the law you know, of Moses, that's, that's not true, folk. That's not true. It was a financial practice well known in the early uh, civilizations, generations. It was, it was more developed in the, in the law and even expanded and then what we have is Jesus saying, this is something that is appropriate and proper, obviously for the Pharisees because they were still under the law, but I don't think he condemned it at all. Therefore, to me, personally, and in my practice, in my life, it was like a tithe is a good place to start. I don't think it's the end of itself, but it's a good place to start as a believer. Okay? Uh, it would be like this. If, if we said, okay, I'm going to bring my grandson here, I'm going to give him 10 $1 bills. Okay? And we all know the money didn't come from him, it came from me. Okay? And I said, hey, now that I was generous to you, give me back something to show me how generous you are. And the test would be, how much would your grandkid give you? Some of you have such good grandkids, they'd give you all ten back. Okay? Mine wouldn't. Okay? And, and all the, the least generous back to me would be giving me one, a tenth, one of those $10 bills. They might give a little bit more, but to say, man, that is a lot to give back. Well, actually, you didn't have anything beforehand, Preston. It's all a gift to you, okay? So if you just give me one back out of the 10, you're still $9 ahead, Okay? It doesn't seem 
so difficult when we look at it from that perspective of how God is gracious to us. Now, here is where the New Testament really stresses. It doesn't give tithe, but it talks about sacrificial giving. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we want to get there. There's a really interesting story that is really important that Jesus teaches us a lot about this idea of giving unto him. You're headed towards the end of Mark chapter 12. And let's just look at this verse while you're turning. In Malachi, God says to them that you've robbed me. And the people respond and they say, how is it we robbed you? How could we rob God? Anybody remember what he says? He says this, will man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, wherein have we robbed thee? You robbed me by keeping the tithes and offerings. You robbed me. It came from me in the first place. You were supposed to do it as an act of thankfulness and gratitude, but you kept it. You're robbing me. God's pretty serious about this. Uh, and the Bible does make a distinction between tithes and offerings. The tithe is a, is a basic, and then there's some offerings beyond. In Mark chapter 12, you know this story well. Mark chapter 12, the last few verses. And Jesus sat over against the treasury. He's in the temple, and he's watching the people... Uh, putting in offering, and he beheld the people casting in money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. There came a certain poor widow, and she threw in, what do you have? Any of you have footnote on mites? What's that? 50 cents, is that what you have? Anybody have anything, that explanation of what a mite is? Okay, it's the small, not just small, it's the smallest coin possible in New Testament era. Okay, uh, in that region of the world, I should say. She threw in two mites, which make a farthing. He called unto them, his disciples, he said, Hey, guys, verily I say unto you, this poor widow has cast more, more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all of them cast in from their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all of her living. Okay. So we, we set the scene. Okay, the scene is real clear. They're in the temple. They're giving their gifts. The gifts, by the way, the gifts were, were supposed to be done. Okay, this could be your regular offering. This could be your special poor person offering. Whatever you're supposed to be doing, uh, it was regularly done. Jesus and disciples, they sit at a corridor, and they're watching people give. Do you ever do people watching? Yes, no? Okay, where you, you just go. You, you just go to the mall, and you sit down, and you just watch people. It is insightful. Okay. It is amazing. Okay. When we were on vacation, we went to the Gulf, and we thought, okay, let's just wade into the Gulf a little bit. Okay. This is just Deb and I by ourselves. We waded in. It was right after the hurricane had come through in, in August, so the waves were pretty good. And I said to her, watch, we'll get knocked over, and we won't be able to get back up. We entertained everybody on that beach, rolling and rolling and rolling, and we're trying to help each other get up, and both of us are just, and we're laughing so hard. Somebody walked by and said, can I help you? No, we're having too much fun. And we're entertaining everybody else that's just, you know, everybody else, when I'd look up, people would be staring, and then they would... So here we have the people watching. Jesus is doing it, and he's watching many people, including the rich, and he talks about the poor widow. We already mentioned the smallest coin, and he contrasts her giving with their giving. In the contrast, is he commending or condemning her? He's commending her. Okay. And so he's making positive. Here's the thing. What lessons do you learn from this account about giving? 
Okay, let's just throw this one out. From Jesus' perspective towards you, what does Jesus watch? Okay. What other lessons do you have? Okay, an attitude is, is, it's not the amount, the attitude. What else? He knows our resources. She gave sacrificially. What did you say, Linda? She didn't hold anything back. Any other thoughts? Linda, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop this a little bit. Does that mean we should all cast in everything in our pockets this morning to the offering box? So you cast in, is this passage demanding? Let me rephrase that. Okay. Um, is this passage demanding that we cast in every amount of money we have? No, it's not demanding. It's not demanding. Okay. We know that from other passages. But it is commanding excessive giving at times. Okay. It's faith giving. It's, 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 it's obviously commanding that. Any other lessons? You just walk through something that you've already said. Jesus watches what we give. You know, I've had people say to me, well, nobody knows what we give. Yeah. <laughs> that may be true. I don't have a clue, a clue what anybody here gives. I don't have any clue. We work very hard to make sure we don't know and keep it that way. I don't have a clue. But just because I don't know what everybody gives and you don't know what I give, God does. God does, okay? God is pleased with sacrificial giving. God does not. Isn't this an interesting concept? This goes contrary to what, what sometimes we think. God doesn't reject or excuse widows from giving or people who are impoverished. People don't have as much money. Oh, you don't have to give. He never says that in the New Testament, okay? Should even people with low incomes give? Yeah, the answer is yes, they should. How many people should give? All believers, all believers, okay. Jesus is more concerned about the attitude, I think that's what you said, Mike, uh, than the giver, than the amount they give. Giving is never to be done for show, to impress. I mean, who would have been impressed by this widow's giving? <laughs> yeah, Jesus was, yeah, Jesus was. But what were the others giving? Yeah, they were, and usually they would blow the trumpet. Giving is always to be done voluntarily, okay? And giving is to be done to God's program. By the way, was the temple having problems? Was it a perfect temple system? No, but still Jesus advocates give to the system that was there at that time. And so there's lots of good principles here that we could talk about. But 2 Corinthians 9, and there's a page that talks about this, the idea of all these things are listed out, abundant giving, bountiful giving, and it gives you the text. I'm going to add one to it. I'm going to add one here because I think this is very important. If you back up to verse, uh, verse 9 in chapter 8, it talks about how Jesus Christ gave that Jesus Christ, he gave, he, it's basically we get that song about that idea that he left the treasures of heaven and he came down for us because in chapter 8, I'll get there and join you, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he 
became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay, so giving should also be done by, like Christ, okay, in that sense that, that we should give in a sacrificial sense. By the way, God never asks us to give something he hasn't done himself, sacrifice. So we have those basic principles talking about the monk. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You have verse 7. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of, for God loves. Okay, let's talk about it. Okay, this is one of the really important passages. talks about cheerful giver from this text. I am to give as I have. Okay, just break it. We're going to break it down phrase by phrase. I am to give as I have. What's that? Purposed in my heart. Okay? So giving is self determined, it's self planned. Let's take it a step further. I am not. Where's the negative here? What is it? I am not to give. And there's two ideas of, that are negative here. Not grudgingly. What's it mean to give grudgingly? I'm not supposed to do that. What's that? Fine. I'll do it. Okay. Other, other thoughts? You really don't want to? Have you ever paid a bill you don't want to? You know? Have you always been really excited about paying taxes? Yes? No? Okay. Okay. So when I write out or give my local income tax, I'll guarantee I do it grudgingly. Okay. It's like <clears throat> have to do it. Any other thoughts about what grudging is? What's that? I still didn't hear him, sorry. Reluctantly? Okay. That's that idea. The word literally means you can relate to this. I'm giving out a sorrow. It's paining me to give this. I'll give you an illustration that's paining me every time I would drive by it. The sinkhole out back. We have put hundreds and hundreds of dollars into filling a sinkhole. That bugs me. It's, it's money down. Yeah, literally, literally. Okay, that's a grudging giving. But So the idea, of, you even said reluctantly. Okay, what's the other negative? We're not to give grudgingly. Uh, the necessity aspect is to feel pressured by others. Okay, we're not to give. How, how do churches make you feel pressured? What's that? We're not meaning to budget? They do what? You know of churches that do that? Yeah, I've, I, we had a campaign one time for a building. They wanted to yeah. get Oh, and they came by and they, they came by. Got it. Got it. Uh, I know of one church one of our missionaries was at, and at the Sunday, end of the Sunday morning service, the missionary said that, uh, they said, today we can't afford a love offering for the missionary. And our missionary who drove down there said, well, if I had known that, okay, we can't afford because we owe some money. We need to paint and do this around the building. We need $1,000, and we're not leaving until we get $1,000. Forty-five minutes later, they were held captive until people came up with $1,000. Me? 
Okay? I would have got up and left on the very first round of that one. That's me personally. You, you, you don't hold people captive until they give money, right? No, yes. Well, maybe, maybe I'm just thinking goofy. It's like, you aren't going to force me to give. If you tell me I have to give, I'm going to show you I don't have to. Yeah, I, just, just to be... <laughs> yeah, I know. I can swing the pendulum. I'm the only one in this room that would do that. Okay. But the idea of the pressure, I, here's how our church did. This isn't a Christian church. This was the church I grew up in. And what they would do is they'd publish everybody's, everybody's giving. Yeah, every year you'd get this statement. And guess what everybody would look for? Okay, who's giving the most? And it was just this very um, obvious way of forcing people to give. It was awkward. Here's, here's God. Finally, God loves A. What's it mean? Okay, does anybody know what the word is? Anybody know what the original word is? We've mentioned it multiple times. It's hilaros. God loves a hilaros giver. giver. What's, yeah, hilarious. You know, it's, it's joyful giving. We're supposed to give privately, okay? The idea of private giving is a principle here that comes out of the passage that talks about the idea. Um, do you remember in Matthew chapter 6? Jesus is talking about giving alms. Anybody remember this text? Okay, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells them that giving of alms is okay, the giving of alms, but they're doing it in a wrong way. Anybody remember what it was? What's that? Yeah, he says this. Take heed that you do not your alms before men. Now, he's commending them. Take heed that you, uh, that you do not do your alms in this fashion. But he's commending them and saying, keep on doing it. And what was the idea that he says, don't do this? What, what's the don't? Giving alms to be seen of men. Okay. Otherwise, you have no reward of your father, which sees in secret. Therefore, when you give alms, do not sound a trumpet, as the hypocrites in the synagogues and the streets do, that they may have glory of men. They have their reward. But when you give alms, let not your right hand know what your le- let not your left know what your right hand is doing. That your alms may be given in secret. Your father, which sees him in secret, shall reward thee openly. Okay. So, what are they doing wrong? What's their motivation for giving? Yeah, yeah, it's just very simple. To just to impress others, to gain favor. They wanted others to know what they're giving. Okay, with that in mind, what does the phrase, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? In all seriousness, how does that work? You think he's talking about the body or is he talking about the individual? Say one thing, do another. That, that's more like hypocrisy. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes you know, okay. Forgiving, you just do it automatically. Okay. Okay. What were you going to say? Okay. Yeah, I think all the concepts you have are, are all headed the same, uh, the right way. Um, I don't see this as something too in-depth. 
you know, representing anything else. It's just a, it's a phrase. Don't let your left hand, don't let your left hand know what your right, right hand is doing. I'm, I'm really confused right now. Okay, uh, don't let your, it, it's a metaphor, a saying. I don't think there's any deep picture here. What's, what's the idea? You should, you should do it in such a way that even if you could keep a secret from half your body, do it that, just do it. Like you said, almost automatically without, without you even stopping and saying, hey, I'm giving. You're just going to walk. It's, to me, that's why I understand that this is just the idea of we don't need to let others know, kind of what you were referring here. And just do it in such a way that, hey, God knows and I'm very content that God knows what you give and you give it with the right spirit. Now, here's the question. We go a little bit further, okay? Why do you think Jesus promoted anonymous giving for a practice in the church? What's that? What's that? He's not a respecter of persons? Okay, okay. It avoids promotion of self. I was thinking about condemnation of the Pharisees and how they did things okay. to uh, show, and he doesn't want people to Okay, the condemnation aspect, the Pharisees did it all for show. What's that? That doesn't let the rich only lead the church. Oh, that would never happen. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, good thoughts. Anybody else? Yeah, Deb? Yeah, good idea. Fabulous. I thought the same thing. So I'm going to say to you, great minds. <laughs> okay. He was battling a culture of his day that giving was done to impress and show off. He's battling our own human nature. Our own human nature is... You know, let me be seen. So let's counter human nature. The anonymity would help the church experience unity and camaraderie. I think that's what you were referring to, the rich not running the church, but the unity, and Deb, I think I put it this way, would help everybody in the body to feel like they're contributing because nobody knows what everybody's giving. So if I'm only giving $1 and that's my sacrificial giving, I don't know if somebody's giving more than $1. I might just think, hey, this is the norm. Everybody's giving a buck, and we're all equal. And by the way, we are all equal in the body of Christ. Yes? Okay. And so we can all have a valuable part. Now, here's a question on your notes, but I think this is important for you to, to if you're teaching this, you want to be able to, to, to make sure that they understand is, was there ever a time in the New Testament they did know what somebody gave? Yeah, where? The answer is yes. Okay, in the book of Acts, remember any, any spot where it happens? Okay, when they're coming and they're laying things at the apostles' feet, and it says in Acts chapter 4, this comment. The people knew that others were selling the houses and lands and the prices that they, were, that they brought that so as to help one another. They know that gifts are being given. 
Okay? It says that the items were laid at the apostles' feet, so at least the apostles knew what was being given. In fact, in Acts 4, people know that Barnabas sold his land and brought the money to the apostles. It doesn't say the amount. But it says that they knew that he had given that. And so is this idea of secrecy, does it have to be so secret that nobody is keeping records? We could do that. We could do that. But to say, okay, we're going to give anonymously and trying to keep confidentiality, at the same time having somebody with some awareness so as to be able to help give accountability to somebody at the end of the year, they could assess their own giving. Um, I, I see in scriptures that you know, some might be aware of the gifts, and yet if they're aware, they cannot broadcast it. It shouldn't be broadcasted in that giving. You should be, here's my comment, you should, and if I'm doing this Bible study, you should be in a church that helps anonymity in giving be a reality. In other words, don't go to a church that they publish everybody's giving. Don't go to a church that they make it clear. You know, we want to thank so-and-so this morning, you know, for and, you know, and broadcasting it. So I think that's very important. Uh, why should all of us give on a regular basis? Okay. Okay, what's that? God's given to us on a regular basis. We're reciprocating. What's that? Okay, it's appropriate scripturally. It's part of the worship. Okay. In our notes, there, he's going to just help you to just wait without rehearsing everything. In your notes, he's going to say, hey, let's just, just talk about some basic ideas. No one should give out of a desire. Let's answer this one first. Why do some people give and they shouldn't be giving this way? Show off? What? Impress other people? Okay. Does that ever happen that people give to show off? Or to impress, okay? They appear more, before, more spiritual. Can you think of a time when people gave in the New Testament so as to impress the believers? Ananias and Sapphira, okay? And we all know what happened to them, okay, because they're lying. And they didn't even give everything they said. So they were lying about it. The reasons were to give are threefold. He says, out of obedience, you have all these passages you got it. We don't have to rehearse this. You know this already. We said this, out of love for God and love for others. Um, passage, this section, we read, I speak not by commandment, by occasion of the forwardness of others, that you would prove the genuineness of your love. Remember what the occasion is? They had said, we're going to give to this offering, this special offering, but they haven't done it. He says, now prove the sincerity of your love. Oh, that is so great. I am so for missions. I just, I just think missions are the greatest thing. Then give. Give to that ministry. Okay. Wherefore, show you to them and uh, before the other churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on you that you people have been very generous. Show that. Prove it. Prove your love for other people, for other ministries in that regard. And in Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about that idea. And this is an interesting text. If I were doing this Bible study with somebody, you want to turn there? There's more than just the one verse. Because in this passage, he's quoting, where Matthew 6, he's quoting, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's more to the text. 
you want to turn there? Watch this. It's, it's amazing what he says. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be singular, your whole body shall be full of light. But that is, if your eye be focused on something, it's, you're going to have light. But if your eye be evil, your whole body is filled with darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great that darkness is throughout your whole being. No man can serve. Okay? And he goes, for either he hate the one, love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the others. And then he tells us who's two, two of the most common masters. You cannot serve God or... Okay, so th- this text is loaded. Oh, whew, just so much. In the context, he's saying that money is very powerful. Would you agree with that? That money controls people? Yes? Okay. Does it influence us a lot? It does. Okay, we were just talking out front when we were solving the world's problems. The, the, a lot of the, what's happening in, the, in, in our own country is we could say, okay, you want to find out what's the motive behind things? Follow the... Okay, and so yeah, we all know that that's the way it works. Money can even dominate somebody, even a believer. Okay, um, and again, poor people don't have this problem. Yes, no? Can poor people be greedy? Yeah, okay. Your attitude towards and use of money reveals your heart. That's where Jesus is going. Your money reveals your heart's affections and goals. Those who love the Lord will use the money to lay up treasures in heaven. Does that mean all of our money should be invested in church ministry? No, because if you don't provide for your own family, your we're an infidel. So you got to have that balance of, okay, I'm going to give to the Lord, but at the same time, okay, uh, I need to meet obligations, owe no man anything, and so what I want to do is I want to lay up treasures in heaven. Those who love this world will invest primarily where? If your whole focus is this world, what do you invest in? Yeah, the things of this world. So that powerful text. And then he asks the question, which one is your giving? Is your giving, you know, is giving supposed to be the thermostat or is it the thermometer? Does it reveal or does it control your heart? Okay, it's basically it's revealing your heart's temperature. So it's that thermometer idea. We're supposed to be giving number two out of gratitude. Let me stop there, okay, because I only have a little bit. They have, in the last section of that, of that uh, stewardship, they ask several questions, very good practical questions. They, it's all spelled out. So I'm not going to take time to finish that. I just want to finish this and then start our next section next week. Then Pastor Art will finish out the entire section of evangelism. But in that one section at the back side of the stewardship, if you didn't get a page, there's like five or six questions that are very, very practical that you want to rehearse, you want to go over. They do a really good job in answering them. Thanks for your input. Let's get ready for our worship service.